Um, sorry, I stood you up on Friday. You are an absolute. I can see you sat there with a wee dram in your hand, just going, where, where is he? Mate, it was lonely. This week, we're going to have a, a right good look at uh, Aussie whiskies. So, you have to ask yourself, I suppose, don't you? you have to have a right good think about it. Do you still watch Neighbours? Do people still watch that? I don't know. Or do you remember, well, you know, watching it after school when you were younger? Kind of show my age here a little bit. But did you ever wonder why Harold Bishop and Charlene Robertson, obviously now known as Kylie, didn't ever sip on an Aussie whiskey at the end of their episode? Have you been wondering what they get up to in Australia with regards to whiskey making? And how are they drinking it? Where are they drinking it? Or do they drink it instead of Bundy and Cokes and Castlemaine 4Xs? If all these questions have been hampering your sleep most nights and it's up there with you for the meaning of life, then fear not as we have you covered on this episode as we delve into the fascinating world of Aussie whiskey with our dear friend, Craig Johnston from The Lark Distillery. Welcome my friends to Not Another Whiskey Podcast. And as always, great to have you listening alongside us. And it's me, Daz Haldane, with the legend, of course, in his own mind, Mr. Whiskey Mitch Beshard. What's happening, my man? Oh, good, mate. Oh, good. Good to be here. Great chatting with you. As always, having a wee dram. Coming up on our 25th episode and almost a year together of doing this, mate. Can you believe that? I can't, actually. It's quite worrying. Um, it has whizzed by. We started this, didn't we, really, as a just a bit of a lockdown hobby. Something yeah. is a bit of a laugh. Um, but I can't believe it's 12 months. It's unbelievable. Crazy, mate. Time flies when we're having fun. It does, man. It does. So well, what, what we're going to do to actually celebrate our first year anniversary is we yeah. want you guys to get involved. Um, so we're going to ping out some questions on our Instagram page. And also we've got our Twitter account. So if you're on Twitter, I think it's uh, NA Whiskey Podcast. We're on there. Daz, you look after that. That's, the, that's right, right? He checks his phone very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, while Daz checks that, you're I do right. know we are well, on well, Instagram. Me. As yeah. uh, not another whiskey podcast. So fire us over some me some messages, some questions that you want to ask us about the show. And it can be absolutely anything you want to ask us. And whether that's relating to whiskey or what kind of underpants Daz wears. However, that might be a little bit of a dodgy road to go down. So I don't know if you want to do that. Um, but ask us anything you want. And what we plan to do is create a whole episode based around your questions for the show to celebrate our one-year anniversary, which will be kind of cool. So, guys, keep an eye out for that on social media. Um, but anyway, back to this sweet subject, which, Daz, you introed so beautifully there, man, and thanks for that um, little bit of a, a stumble, which no one will notice because I'll edit it just absolutely yeah. beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> and no one notice that you had a massive weekend on the piss and you're still really hungover and you can't read off your phone. Not quite sorted yet. Um, we have a mutual friend to blame for my condition on Friday, and yes. um, I must apologise. We we had a recording scheduled on Friday night, nine o'clock, um, and I failed to turn up for it. Honestly, and, uh, mate. I am I am publicly. I would like to just offer my apologies um, publicly. Um, if you want me to turn up on news channels uh, and do it on TV, happy to do so. <laughs> no problem. Do you know what? I I was actually sitting on Friday night. I said to you earlier that I had everything set up, but I totally lied. I didn't. Because I texted you, and when I, when you didn't reply, I was like, 
I know he's forgotten about this and he's been doing something else. So I just, I just sat and I was just hanging out with, with my daughter and I, we were just like playing um, Xbox and stuff. And I was like, ah, he's not, he's not going to record tonight. So don't feel that bad. Mate. But you should feel bad, but not that bad. I, I feel bad. And I can't believe you're letting me off the hook for telling me that you weren't <laughs> set up. I had it in my head that you had the microphone out, you had your glasses all lined up, you know, ready for <laughs> tasting notes out. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, um, well, talking about the subject that we were meant to talk about on Friday, um, Australian whiskey, you know, and for me, I've been keeping close tabs on this because I actually lived in Australia for a while, uh, almost just over a year. Daz, I know you spent about eight weeks over there. Mm. So for me, Australia has always been kind of close to my heart and something that, that, you know, I've been watching with interest to see how they're going whiskey wise. And obviously, we've got our good friend Craig that was over recently, and and you chatted to him. So you know, we're going to get into that in just a second. Well, you know, I think it's I wasn't aware of it, mate. When I was over in Australia, I was too young. I was about eighteen or nineteen at the time, and I wasn't really that interested in whiskey. So, um, you know, at that point in my life, it was totally different, and I didn't really see a lot of it. Actually, quite a lot of Aussie beers, you know. Uh, but I was up in Queensland, so. My mates up there, I know a few of them uh, do listen to the podcast and kind of follow our whiskey journeys and stuff like that. Mate, they're, they're you know, they're basic, basic boys. They like beer. They like hot weather. That's yeah, all. And, and, and a bit of rugby, mate. That's it. And Bundy and Coke, no ice. Smash yeah. it. You know, from a shoe. That's the game. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I think it's one of those. That was my experience of, of Australia back then. But over the years, when I spent a bit of time in Asia, I did see... Um, Quite a few of the Aussie whiskey guys just over time. I met the guys um, from Heller's Road. Um, I met Martin Eber, who's based out in Hong Kong. He runs a blog, brilliant whiskey blog called The Time for Whiskey. And, and he's pretty well connected like with the, the Aussie whiskey guys. So I met through him, uh, David Vitale from uh, Starward. Uh, Matty Fowen also works there as well. So I, I have been keeping a kind of eye on it. But when I got, you know, obviously with Craig being over there, Scottish guy, um, mm-hmm. basically grew up, you know, at the Glen Kinchy distillery. His dad works there. He worked there as a guide uh, when he was younger. Um, he's been out there for quite a long time working at Lark, kind of on and off, done a few things in between, but still there now. And I've kind of followed it more so through him just to see what he's up to, yeah. hearing stories and stuff. And when we bumped into him just a couple of weeks ago, uh, before we'd even scheduled to have him in, I couldn't believe how many distilleries there were in Tasmania alone. And, and one of the stats he gave us, and I'm probably going to ruin one of our uh, facts that will not make you any friends in a bar on, on a Tuesday night. But You will do. You will do. There's, there's more distilleries in Australia now than there are in Scotland, which is mad. That is crazy, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, I remember when I was there, I was lucky enough to, I jumped in this amazing bar and started working there in uh, Adelaide. And it was like right on the beach, um, beautiful bar, windows looking over the, the beach on one side, and then the windows at the other side looking over the marina. And I suppose I was quite lucky because I didn't, I saw that culture of just drinking beer and Bundy, but I wasn't exposed to it work-wise because it was quite a high-end place. Um, and I ended up managing that place and, and, you know, putting together a cocktail list. And at that time, Australia was very new to cocktails. I remember bringing back the first bottle of Hendrix, like in my bag and putting it on the bar and everyone was going nuts about it. Um, but yeah, it was, it, I think it was, it was interesting for me. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of similarities, I would say with regards to the drinking culture in Australia, as there is in, in the UK, for sure. Yeah, we, we, we had a few good, I mean, we had a few good insights into Australian culture when I was over there. And I do think like the, the RTD culture, because of the weather, you know, yeah. you're always going to take slabs and bags as well of wine 
to people's homes and stuff just because of the nature of it. You know, you're, you're outdoors a bit more, uh, you know, when we say barbecue, literally the crowd, the clouds start coming over your house. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> We're barbecuing under an umbrella, always. <laughs> totally. And we do it just out of stubbornness, just to keep it going. Um, but over there, obviously, there's so much more outdoors, public spaces, gardens, all that kind of stuff. Consumption actually just seems a bit more normal over there in those kind of spaces. Whereas here, it is reserved very much so for homes and pubs. So it does lend itself to a slightly different drinking occasion, doesn't it? Which is, yeah, I guess, yeah. why whiskey's so popular. Absolutely. But we're going to get into this with, with you and Craig in just a second. But what else yeah. you've been up to, mate, apart from standing me up? Yeah, hey, apart from standing you up, well, what have we done? Um, since the last time we probably recorded, well, we did our episode, didn't we, just recently with Lockley, uh, which which was great. I really enjoyed that visit, man. That was a really cool, that was cool. Uh, distillery trip. And it was it was nice to nice to hang out in real life, mate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you, you, can't, been, uh, you can't seem to do it virtually. So No, I know. More reliable. <laughs> Uh, but you, you've probably been up to a wee bit more than I have in, in recent weeks. Well, before we get on to what I've been up to, you, were you not hanging out in a helicopter and flying about in a helicopter, James Bond style? I was, yeah. Um, I don't want to brag about it, but... <laughs> but, <laughs> was, uh, but let me tell you about my helicopter right, experience. Right, there was, a, there was this moment. Uh, no, I was, I was doing some video stuff for um, a castle just outside of Edinburgh, Um it's through the guys at Scottish Concierge and Seaton House is a, a castle just on the on the kind of outskirts of Edinburgh and East Lothian. And uh, I was doing a whiskey tasting, basically, and uh, I didn't know that the part of the recording and part of the story was that I was coming in from the north of Scotland into the castle to deliver this fabulous whiskey tasting. And um, so when we got there, there was a helicopter there. And it took me up, whizzed me around, and I got filmed walking off of it. So when the footage comes back, um, I'll send you a really stunning video of, of me looking very Daniel Craig-like, uh, hopping off a helicopter as the rotors go on above me and I make my way up to the whiskey tasting. So uh, it wasn't your normal Thursday evening, I must say, but it was, uh, it was a good laugh. <laughs> nice, mate. Nice. Look yeah, forward yeah. to seeing that. I, yeah, I, so, I'll send you it. So while you're buzzing about in helicopters, I was getting pissed on by the Scottish weather in a tent mm, on, over yeah. on Isla. I loved my message to you. Is, uh, mate, make sure you send over a couple of videos <laughs> yeah, so I'll put, I'll put them up on social media and you basically just told me to piss off <laughs> so to put it into context for everyone that's listening i, I planned this um three night back well bike packing trip around island jura which was absolutely amazing right i have to say it's the best thing i've ever done on a bike probably the best trip i've ever done over to Ireland. i've done a load of them but just to have like everything on your bike camp in the wild do all that experience you know shout out to to our boy teddy hooked me up with uh well hooked us up with some really nice tastings at Beaumont mm. and uh lafroig and then obviously obviously to uh mark bruce over on jura had an amazing yeah. experience with him over on jura good aussie boy working in scotland there yeah go. mate yeah oh, but jura was, was fantastic segue. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah when you texted me to put it i don't think i've actually told you this yet but it was the second night and we had this amazing beach. We, we camped out on Macker Bay, which is just by Kilhoman. And we had this amazing fire just on the beach, just hanging out, having a few drams. It was brilliant. Went to go to the tents and we're like, right, time to go to bed, 11 o'clock. Literally as 11 o'clock hit, it started to rain and it rained for 12 hours straight. Right, okay. So literally in the tent the whole night, just with the rain beating down on it, had to pack up in the rain, had to cycle in the rain for about three hours 
And that's when you texted me saying, can you do some video, uh, little videos, mate? And, and, you know, send it for social. So, yeah, at that point, I wasn't in the best uh, frame of mind to do any video content on what we were doing over, over on Isla. But apart from that, absolutely amazing trip. Totally loved it. We bit, we bit cranky. <laughs> a little bit. I actually, uh, one of the other things I did, and I haven't done this for quite a long time, I renewed my membership at the, uh, the Whiskey Society. There you go, mate. Well done. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm quite pleased with that, and I've been in a couple of times. Um, we're, uh, well, we're 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 hopefully going to nail down that as a venue as well for a, a little session later on in the month, mate, which should be fun. Yeah, a little uh, uh, our not another whiskey podcast live event is actually going to happen, so that's good. We did uh, an episode in our eleventh episode. We touched on world whiskies, and we sort of jumped around a lot: Taiwan, Japan. Tasmania, Sweden, and we did an episode actually on the back of that on India specifically. And I felt it'd be a brilliant opportunity to dive a lot deeper into Tasmanian whiskey. And uh, an old pal, an old industry friend, Craig Johnston, has been heavily involved in Tasmanian whiskey now for uh, for a number of years. And and Craig started his career in Scotland and ended up uh, over at the Lark Distillery. And, and Craig actually ended up back in Scotland recently and we managed to catch up and we thought it'd be a brilliant opportunity to hear more about Tasmanian whiskey, which, well, and we know Australian whiskey particularly is one of the most exciting categories that there is at the moment, hearing loads of great things. And and I, even I was surprised actually just at how many distilleries there are now in Tasmania when we caught up with Craig just a, a week or so ago. So we've got Craig Johnston here from the Lark Distillery uh, to keep us right and to give us an update on himself on what's happening in Tassie at the moment and and just have a couple of drams to be honest so how are you Craig mate welcome thanks Daz it's uh it's a pleasure nice uh nice bit of serendipity to be in the, the same time uh, time zone for once I know that, that's it it's not late at night or early in the morning for anyone yeah mate um so you're back in Scotland just uh mooching around for a bit seeing family catching up with some whiskey people how's it been yeah, it's been it's been good. I'm I'm kind of it's it, it's a dual a dual purpose trip. This one, um, had a, a pal getting married uh, in Lucas last week, so it was nice to to do that. But tacking on some uh, some some whiskey stuff too for for Lark. So I've been catching up with the guys at uh, at Glenfinnick and and McAllen, looking at some of the the sustainability sort of projects that those guys are going through, um, which you know plugs into to our you know our expansion plans over the next few years. So it's. It's been great. I mean, the weather's the weather has made me, you know, think of home. I suppose, <laughs> think yeah. think of Scotland. <laughs> um, but obviously, the yeah, the dri- driving ride with my wife up in Speyside, it's always stunning up that way. And and obviously down here in East Lothian, it's uh, it's gorgeous as well. Yeah, yeah, and and I think when, well, I think you were probably a brand ambassador at Edrington or something like that when when our paths first crossed, and that that seems like a lifetime ago now. Um, how, how did you end up at Lark? Oh, it was a it was a while ago now. Um, so I suppose if I go back to the start, I kind of got into the industry um, down here in East Lothian as as a tour guide. Um, uh, I, I worked at Glen Kinchy, uh, started on my 80th birthday actually, so it was 19 years ago this week. Um, You're giving away your age now for anyone that can. I know. Do that. <laughs> I know. Um, and and I really I took that job to to improve public speaking skills. It was you know I had very little knowledge of 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 whiskey um, outside of that. You know my uncles drank grouse, but that was pretty much about it. Mm. Um, and I fell in love with the the uh, with, with the world of whiskey quite 
quite quickly. You know, you know yourself. You you give a story out, you get two or three back from every single person you meet, and uh, it's just a, an amazing vibe and, and and buzz about this the the whole industry and always has been. So ended up doing that while I was at uni. Did some stuff on the side for the Malt Whiskey Society, and then um, and then got an opportunity in Canada with with Edrington with McAllen and Highland Park, uh, based in Vancouver. Um, did that for just over a year. Came back to Scotland. Did a few other bits around uh, the ambassador's sort of circuit, I suppose. Um, got a job with Brookladdy, uh, and then decided that I needed a bit more commercial experience. So ended up moving out to Dubai. Uh, people will be thinking not the, you know, not the uh, first whiskey market that comes to mind, but it's quite vibrant. There's a, a huge fan base out there and some amazing venues and and, and products and, and people to meet uh, in the Middle East. So I got to connect with more brand owners. I got to see a different way of doing business, a different market, a completely different model. Um, and I realized after about 18 months out there that first of all, it was too hot for me. Um but second of all, I wanted to get into production. I wanted to learn more about, you know, I had the theory in my head as, as you know, most of the amazing ambassadors out there do, but I'd never actually sort of got my hands dirty and made anything. So I was about to come back to Scotland and, and study for my general certificate in distillation. And I got an email out the blue from Chris Thompson and Bill Lark, who I'd known for years just through the industry, saying that they had a, a vacancy for a distiller down in, in Hobart. Uh, and they asked me if I could share the you know the the uh, job opportunity with my network and I basically politely declined and sent my own CV in instead. Yeah, yeah I'm not um, sharing it with anyone. I want that. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. So October 2014 was 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 when I moved down to down to Taz and it was the first time I saw, I think a, a, a really different way of 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 producing what what we would probably describe as an old fashioned old school way of of, of production. Um, they have still have this tin shed. Um. And at the time, they made we made whiskey three days a week for Lark, and we brewed two days a week for another distillery, uh, and we were making a hundred liters a day from the stills. And everything was done, you know, we were mashing in with a paddle and an old milk vat. Um, sensory was so important; you tasted every single one of your brews every single day, so that you could trace, you know, the change in acidity, the change in flavor, um, how that that fermentation was coming on. And then obviously put it through the stills and, and we made all our cuts uh, by smell and taste as well. Uh, and that's, th those are two practices that still, you know, still happen today. In fact, we are still at, at, um, at our Cambridge distillery mashing them by hand as well. We're about to get an upgrade, but uh, but we are still yeah, yeah. doing it. The, the I really mean, that's like, a, that's, that's like distilling from a different era, right? I mean, that that's not been the case in most of Scotland's distilleries for a number of decades now, right? Yeah, and I think I was lucky in that my sort of exposure to production um, was so kind of rudimentary because you do then start to connect the dots. You know, you start to you start to learn what happens. You know, every every spring and every autumn, for example, our uh, wash would go sulfury as the bacteria kind of changed in the distillery. You know, the, the bacterial cultures would keep the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff. And when they were having that stress in the change of seasons, things actually started to smell and taste differently. Um, what's been really, I think, amazing is watching the the, uh, the advancement of that over the last seven years as we've expanded. We've brought more people into the team with, with other world sort of experiences. 
So we're, we've got, you know, data scientists who want to become distillers. We've got uh, people who are in IT who've wanted to become distillers. We've got chemists, we've got winemakers, we've got brewers. And they've all come in and then said, you know, we have all this anecdotal evidence. Let's actually map it and see if it, if it um, stacks up. And it was all stacking up. But what was even more amazing is they, they can then say, well, actually, our trials should go down this path or this path based on what the data is telling us. And then you bring them on the journey and they see what happens from a um, from a sensory perspective. So it's it really has sort of um, yeah, kind of I don't know what, what's what's the what's the word? It's 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 grown and evolved yeah. um, based on people as opposed to based on recipe. Yeah, um, love that because it's not it's not like so. Two thousand fourteen was when you went over that. That's we're almost hmm. ten years now. I mean that's it's a long time. And there's a lot of people that probably don't understand the scale of the Tasmanian whiskey industry. And I was quite shocked, actually, when you told me just how many distilleries there are now <laughs> yeah. over there. That kind of took me aback. I thought in my head, I was like, oh, it's probably about 15 or something like that. For people listening, what, what is the scale of the Tasmanian whiskey industry now? And I guess it's changed in the 10 years almost that you've been there as well, right? There's been a lot of new yeah. opinions and uh, absolutely. I think the first thing to point out is really like this is a, a bit of a, a milestone year for us. This is our 30th anniversary. Um, so Bill, Bill and Lynn Lark originally came up with the idea in the late 80s, and it was 1992 when they got a license. Um, so, you know, we've we've been going three decades now, and the kind of running joke in the industry is that Lark is a, a 30 year startup. Um, yeah. But <laughs> it, it is, it's it's just it's still run with that kind of family feeling and that amazing sort of atmosphere um, and I think if you talk to every single distiller in Taz and, and almost every single one in Australia they would all point to Bill and Lynn being a, a, a sort of um, guide and light for them you know in terms of an inspiration to, to start up their their um, their own setup so I think in Australia it's over 120 distilleries but over half of them are in Taz at the moment um, Lark, we run three sites. So we've got our Cambridge distillery. Now, you know, back in back in the day, as I said, we made whiskey three days a week. These days, the Cambridge distillery runs two sets of stills seven days a week, um, essentially twice every day. So yeah. we're getting we're, we're, we've we're getting you know loads out. And then uh, our column, we've built a column still as well. So that site itself is responsible for probably about three hundred thousand bulk liters of spirit. We've got another one that's half that size and another one that's half that size again. Um, other big players, you've got Sullivan's Cove, which I think most of the listeners will have, will have heard of. Very, very famous brand. Um, got some of the most aged products out there uh, and obviously picked up the gong for best, best whiskey in the world and, and won categories almost every year. Um, so produced some, some amazing stuff from an old brandy still. So even the distillation techniques can be a bit different from site yeah. to site. Uh, Helios Road's one that you see in airports all over the shop, so they're quite quite large. Um, and then, uh, and then you've got your sort of sort of medium players, so places like Old Kempton, um, which used to be known as Redlands Distillery, Spring Bay Distillery. You know, you've got these these amazing little products that never leave the island. Yeah, they, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll produce between twenty and fifty thousand liters a year, maybe. Right. And um, and and they're producing great whiskies that. That, uh, that, as I say, it's really the tourist and the Australian whiskey drinker that, that get to capitalise and, and enjoy them. And then we have this amazing little category. I wouldn't even say micro, they're kind of nano distilleries almost. 
Right. Um, there's one right on the north coast uh, called Fanny's Bay uh, that that is in a in a little village called Tamil Shanta, believe it or not. Um, they make two thousand bulk liters a year when they can be bothered. Right. Uh, okay. Every single batch is done, you know, by hand, two week fermentation times. Um, goes into it, these days 100 litre cask but it's got quite a few 20 litre casks that are there as well uh, he does peated stuff he does unpeated stuff he basically almost has a little vote with uh, with the village to see what to do next um, <laughs> yeah and those, it's great that that those... can exist you know because like small scale distilling in, in such a kind of emotional uh, almost mood-driven way is is something that we don't really see a lot of in Scotland, certainly in whiskey, right? Um, it's just we're just not set up like that anymore. And listening to you talk about the different distilleries, what I do see is is there's a lot of respect and there's there's a lot of interest in what other people are doing here in Scotland. I'm, I'm getting the impression the community is quite tight over there as well. Is everybody kind of, you know, with the tide all ships rise? Is it that kind of mindset, or is there a wee bit of inter uh, industry politics to navigate at times? <laughs> No, it's um, it is it's a hundred hundred percent. All all ships rise. Um, what's interesting is you've got your you know your large players like Lark. You've got your tiny players. You've got the people in the middle. Um, we've all formed a, an association, the Tasmanian Whiskey and Spirits Association, um, and generally find consensus uh, and have really really quite you know uh, amazing debates uh, when you bring in different different viewpoints. One of the challenges that we had as an industry at the start is you know your tiny little guys. Um, and even some of your middle-sized guys um, weren't thinking about scale and they weren't thinking about some of the, the rules that, you know, they would maybe like to see brought in and how they impact the big players and vice versa. Sometimes we, we would make suggestions and, and hadn't thought about how that would Im impact the people further down the chain. Um, but what we're trying to do right now is actually come up with a consensus of rules that makes something a Tasmanian whiskey um, within the category, obviously, of Australian whiskey, because... The rules across there are, are loose enough for us to play with, but also there's a there is a, a I would say, and this is me talking personally, there's a slight danger that you could still have people coming in and, and maybe taking the taking the Mickey a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, just um, this um just some standardized production techniques, you know, minimum maturation times, you know, that those types of rules basically that everybody sort of subscribes to. Yeah, I mean, so Australia, it's, it was actually surprising. You know me, Daz. I'm a bit, bit of a, bit of a geek, bit of a, bit of a nerd when it comes to whiskey. Um, so when I actually had a look into the Australian rules, um, they were based on on Scotch rules from years and years ago and haven't really changed because there wasn't an industry. So the minimum um, ABV is actually thirty seven percent down there. Ah, okay. Uh, no, no one, no one's been, uh, no one's been brave enough to put one on the market of that for a long time. Yeah. Um, so thirty seven percent your minimum. Um, you have to mature it in oak for a minimum of two years. Um, it's got to be made from grain, that and and it's got to obviously be um, distilled in Australia and taste like whiskey. That's 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 about the about the the long and short of it. So <laughs> yeah. we we want to, as an industry, look at maximum cask sizes to obviously stop people yeah. maturing in in huge vats and calling it whiskey. Um, but we don't we don't necessarily want to change the rules about oak. We 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 actually take advantage quite a bit of um, not so much different wood types, but the fact that we can essentially create our own cask finishes if we want by manipulating the barrels. So we'll talk yeah. about that as well. Oh, definitely. Cause you, you've given me a sample, um, a Christmas 
addition um, that, <laughs> that, that that is is mental because um, I was nosing it there and, and getting a sense of like what what actually happened in that cast. But that that was that's definitely something that couldn't happen in Scotland that that can happen in Tasmania. And it was something to do with right. a, it was a, a pie filling, right? <laughs> that ended up getting a syrup. <laughs> so, um... I should I should point out that um, my current role or one of one of my current hats that I wear at Lark. I've been around the I've been around the site. Obviously, started on the distillery floor, and I've you know I've moved around quite a bit within the business to help out with with my experience from from Scotch. But right now, um, probably the, the the most fun part is is wood wood management, looking after the wood policy. Um, and I think what's quite interesting is, you know, we like Scotland, like the Scotch industry, people will be familiar with, we can buy X casks and um, and we, we often do. We actually have access to the oldest tawny cask casks in the world. So the oldest, some of the oldest oak and definitely some of the oldest contents. Um, again, a lot of folk won't know this, but uh, Sepultsfield in South Australia has the longest unbroken lineage of fortified wine in the world. Yeah. They have every single year from 1887 to this year, in Tony and Lark every year we'll get or not every year whenever one's available we'll get an empty 100 year old cask which is either held Tony or Tokay um, or you know one of the fortifieds so we have access to some of the greatest traditional style oak but the way that we like to think you know we don't want to be uh, mimicking Scotland we don't want to, to we, we want to make Tasmanian whiskey a bit like new world versus old world wine so we've taken it upon ourselves to try and create our own style of casks as well. And that's where the fruit mince pie finish comes in. It was so, when you said it, I was like, no, so it just tastes like that. You're like, no, 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 actually we've used it. <laughs> we've used, yeah. Um, this is, uh, I mean, our, our head distiller, Chris, um, he's been he's been with like 15 years now. So after Bill and Lynn, the longest serving uh, employee there, and he started on the bottling line. And when I went across, he was the distillery manager. So he was, essentially my first sort of uh, exposure to, to making whiskey this way. And, and now he is, is, is fully in finished goods uh, and on the leadership team and, and, and really just brings an incredible energy and, and, and way of looking at whiskey uh, to, to the forefront. And um, he, you know, he's always looking for ways to, to create flavor driven and flavor led experiments. But this is one that three years ago, uh, the, wine, uh, the winery, the vineyard next to us uh, is run by a French guy called Alain. And Elaine had basically had a call from one of his French pals who was a, a pastry chef. You can't, you can't get any more stereotypical yeah, than that. Yeah, know, yeah. um, and Jean Pascal, the pastry chef, every year makes thousands of fruit mince pies down in Tats. They're, they're, they're kind of a, a famous all over Australia. Uh, and every year he's left with all the sugary liquid after he puts the stewed fruit in the pie, uh, pie cases and, and then bakes them. He's left with this stuff in the pot. So he called up Elaine and said, look, I'm making so much, so many of these pies, so much of this fruit mince pie jus, essentially. I don't know what to do with it. And Elaine says, well, if it's got sugar in it, we'll ferment it. So he tried to ferment it and it didn't quite work. Didn't, didn't really get a viable product. Yeah. So he brought the fermented stuff down to us and said, do you want to put it through your gin still? And we thought, oh, why not? We'll try that. And it, it, it just, it, 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 didn't, it didn't do what we wanted it to do. Yeah. But then when we sniffed the, the empty wine barrel that had, that had been stored in it, we thought, oh, there might be something here. So we put some um, originally sherry cask or a, a pera cask whiskey into there to see what it would pick up. And our first release was a single cask as an experiment. And it was mind-blowing stuff. 
our biggest fear was that it would finish sweet and cloying and folk would go, it's just a gimmick, you know, yeah. what, what, what are you doing? But it finished like a whiskey. It had all these nutmeg and cinnamon and spice notes on the top, but then it, it finished, it, you know, it tailed off and became a traditional whiskey finish. So what you've got is batch two, which was released 2020. Yeah. Uh, so it's a couple of years ago now. Um, and that was a slightly bigger batch, about three and a half thousand bottles we got, but same, exactly the same idea. And then we did one last year where we actually had to do 10,000 bottles. And that was, um, that was probably the most fun whiskey to put together. You know, yeah. going, we, we were going into uh, some of our, our, our stocks, which were, you know, as I say, we had to have that sherry backbone so that it, it just gave the, it gave the spices something to jump off. Um, but this year we had a bit more market budget behind it, so we, you know, we we actually I think we developed some wrapping paper and you know all the all the other bits and pieces. So yeah, it's yeah. It, it's such a it's a it's a standard lark release now. It comes out every year. Um, we get we Great we get story. these these casts every year, and Jean Pascal keeps telling us to stop selling it because he's like his his mince pie. Uh, sales are not they're not going up as fast as our whiskey sales <laughs> you should yeah. do like one of those little gift packs you know where you get a bottle of whiskey and two pies with it you know <laughs> we, we we actually did we actually did last year but um express post in australia uh you know meant that folk were just getting get little, little packets of crumbs so um but if you if you if you're ever in if you're ever in uh, in what in in our bar on Argyle Street uh, in December, you you know you'll always get a, a drama of this, and you'll get a, one of Jean Pascal's fruitman's pies to pair with it. So yeah, yeah, I'm really enjoying it, man. It's lovely. It's like you say, it is it's still very much a whiskey, and it's got these little bombs of flavour that come just sort of all very subtly just throughout the finish, and it's not overly sweet either. You know, it's got that lovely kind of balance yeah. to it, which um, well, that's the skill, isn't it? That's the that's the game uh, at your that's side the challenge, of business. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Brilliant. And what about Lark then? Because Lark, um, just just sort of to to round off the sort of full story, and 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 it's brilliant to get that insight and in how many distilleries there are, what what's happening at Lark, what you guys are able to do versus what you're not able to do, and this was all possible because there was the Bill Lark really lobbied for this very hard, didn't he, when he opened the distillery mm. in the first place? Because there was no, you weren't allowed to make whiskey effectively in Australia at that point, right? Yeah, there was essentially a small still rule. Um, so there were other, the, the probably the most famous, you know, sort of commercial distillery during the, the time of not having anything on Taz was uh, Carayo, which is in Geelong outside of Melbourne. And you can still find the odd bottle going about. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a celebrated whiskey, um, but it was a commercial sized distillery. And you can, you can still sort of go there and see the, the, the shell of the building that was, that was Carayo. Um, so effectively, into you know, Bill will always tell you this is the first quality whiskey in Australia for over a hundred years, <laughs> um, and he he essentially found his, his local um, senator and member of parliament and said, "Look, this this rule is ridiculous. I want to make whiskey legally. Um, you know, how do we get this changed?" And it took took a good number of years, but but he finally got it changed in in ninety two and could take out the first legal license. There are there are people down there who'd been making you know distilling stuff for for uh, for personal reasons, which is legal and um, well, it's maybe not legal actually. Anyway, I won't say who they are. I don't let, don't let that get in the way. There's yeah, a yeah. few. There's a few. There was a few people down there making like brandy and plum wine and stuff, and, and there was a couple of people who who actually were making illicit whiskey um, before Bill on their tabletop. But he was the first one 
that, that sort of said, I want to do this commercially. And with the support of Lynn, his wife, who just, she has a, a, a drive and an attitude and, and a, um, a, a nose as well that, that you just cannot find, you know, uh, anywhere else. She, she brought the, the sort of creative flair for a lot of the liqueurs and the gins. And she was, you know, she was on the still making the, making the spirit and helping, helping build with the sensory side of things. Um, while he was he was sort of being the face of the brand and the two of them together as a partnership were just absolutely unstoppable. So um, still very very much involved with the business today. Uh, they they you know they got a lifetime achievement award from the Tasmanian Whiskey and Spirits Association. They got their lifetime uh, memberships uh, just before I flew out. So it was really amazing to nice. be part of that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as uh, you know, as you as you point out, if it wasn't for them having a random barbecue in the eighties with uh, with Lynn's Lynn's father, uh, and just asking the question, why is no one making whiskey in Tasmania? Then we wouldn't be sitting here thirty years later trying some stuff that's been yeah. matured in a fruit mince pie. Yeah, um, yeah, that, <laughs> that, that's but, it. Yeah, I think the other thing to point out um, is like Bill and Lynn's inspiration was was scotch um and i think it's also really important to point out that the scotch industry particular john grant up at glenn farkless heard that he was making whiskey it wasn't that bill reached out because bill had no idea who was going to call for help mm-hmm. and it was it was john that called bill and says look i'll i'll make sure you don't kill anyone sort of yeah, thing. yeah yeah you know I'll, I'll i'll help you and um and that relationship and that connection with scotland allowed them to then build their the flavor profile they wanted to go for so you know, they wanted a little bit of smoke, a little bit of peat, fortified, driven, um, you know, quite a robust oily spirit. And that has, you know, that that has been the, the Lark DNA in our classic cask range, you know, for 30 years. And, and it can, mm. will continue to be as long as we can get the, get the casks and get the quality ingredients to, to do that. So um, there's still, a, uh, as I say, a, a very much an inspiration and shine a light for the production team, which is great. Yeah, no, definitely. And what about yourself then, man? What's what's next for Craig Johnston? You're you're looking after the casks. Um, you're you're involved with the the production and the creation of new products. Where mm-hmm. where do you go from there? Are you are you going to stick in with the Tassie whiskies? Are you going to come back uh, to it's... Scotland and uh, make some whiskey here <laughs> one day? <laughs> uh, I mean, ne- ne- never say never. It depends yeah. on on the opportunities. But the the actual the 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 buoyancy and the vibrancy of the industry down there is 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 phenomenal. Um, the big one on my plate right now is is the new distillery, so the new expansion. Um, so I've very much been been able to work with local um, coppersmiths down there, stillsmiths of Tasmania, um, to actually design the entire process. Uh, getting to then work with, as I say, the guys at Glenfiddich and the, and the team at McAllen, uh, as well as elsewhere in the Scotch industry to talk about sustainability and, and that, that side of things is, uh, from an engineering perspective, is, is fantastic to have exposure to. Um, we're leading a, you know, me personally, I love, I love the sustainability aspect. So we've, we've got our carbon, carbon neutral credentials. We've got some credits last this year and last year. Um, and we're trying every single year to drive down our carbon footprint per liter. So there's so many exciting things going on. There's so much, um, so much still to do in Tassie that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, extremely happy. I'll always take a trip back. I'll always, yeah. always come back and, and say hello. But um, yeah, as I say, uh, for the for the, the foreseeable future, it's 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 luck in Tasmania. Cool. Yeah, yeah. no, nah, it's good, man. I mean, listening to you and, and I can see you on the screen as well. There's a smile on your face, you know, when you're talking about these things. Certainly, the 
the looking forward piece, the sustainability, the development mm. of new distilleries, the ability to go out there and, and make these decisions on wood and things. You know, it's an exciting time, obviously, and it looks like you're thriving. And it's great to see, mate. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. No, it's 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 fantastic. And um, I think the the only thing I would say, um, you know, there's loads of folk who've been to Australia. Every single person I meet, oh, I've been to Australia, I never got down to Taz. Um yeah. my advice is 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 change that, change that trend. Like it's an hour, hour and a half flight from Melbourne. And when you you know, you jump in the cab from the airport and you come over the crest of the hill and see Mount Wellington in the background, you sit there and you go, oh, this is a pretty special place. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely come come and say hi to the to the Lark team anytime any of the listeners are across. Nice quality, mate. Thanks so much, man. Oh, pleasure. Cheers, Daz. Nice insight as, as to what's going on in Australia right now. He's worked there for ages and he really does know it inside and out and he's seen it grow and change and, and develop. So yeah, brilliant to have Craig on, mate. Much appreciated and Thanks for making the time because he was just over for a week or 10 days, you know, and he had a lot of family to see, some work yeah, to yeah. do whilst he was over as well. So, no, great, brilliant, really, really interesting. Now it's time for some interesting whiskey facts that definitely won't get you any new friends on a Friday or Saturday night while standing in a bar. Might work on a Monday or Tuesday though. So, Daz, get this, right? You mentioned it earlier a little bit on in the show, but when we look at the entire drinks category in Australia, as of December 2021, there were 333 registered distilleries in operation in Australia. Obviously, not all of them making whiskey. Uh, yeah. you know, a lot of them are making ju- uh, rum, gin and vodka as well, but that's, that's absolutely insane. In 2014, Sullivan's Cove French Oak Single Cask won the world's best single malt whiskey at the World Whiskey Awards. So it's, it's, it's great to see some of these Australian whiskies being recognised for brilliant quality as well, you know, and they're allowed to do things in slightly different ways, um, as, as we heard from, from Craig as he talked us through Lark and what they were up to. The, the Christmas Zhu Christmas uh yeah, whiskey yeah. Is, is, is an absolute cracker i mean i really enjoyed it Amazing. it's like flavor wise i've got your sample matches it really is delicious something a wee bit different but still well within the 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 sort of the recognition of what you would see as, as a whiskey just with a couple of little funky flavors going on so that was very cool so daz can i ask you know saying you've got my sample have you now got a whole cupboard of mitch's samples that you still haven't given me yet because yeah. i think this is about number four maybe five now yeah, I've still got your Arbeg as well. <laughs> this is crazy. So I mentioned 333 registered distilleries in operation, and Craig talked about this a little bit with Bill Lark, um, really kind of opening this whole uh, antiquated law uh, up with regards to distilling in Australia. So to go back a little bit in time, Australia only only produced an estimated 140 million, million litres of whiskey uh, from 1860 through to the 1980s. Now, I say only 140 million litres. To put that into perspective, we've got a distillery called Gervin in Scotland, and that comfortably produces well over that in a year. Mm. So that amount of, 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 of whiskey is hardly anything over that period of time. You know, New South Wales uh, banned the production of spirits from 1976 to 1822 due to mass consumption. Um, yeah, so after this ban... Sorel and Dewent distilleries. I'm pretty sure I just butchered the pronunciation of those uh, those distilleries, but they were the first producing spirits from locally grown grain 
that loosely resembled whiskey. So we believe it was kind of this whiskey spirit that was coming out, but um, not exactly to what we know as whiskey today. And there you nice. go. That's your interesting facts about Australian whiskey. Cheers. No, it was, it was good. I learned a lot from Craig. I didn't learn anything from you um, in that episode. <laughs> Do your best Aussie accent, mate. The next episode is Eberfeldy. How was that? <laughs> Read the rest of it. <laughs> I, I'm not very good at it. Maybe. Next episode is Aberfeldy, mate. And we've got India. She's going to join us to talk to us about what's been happening up there, up at that Highland Distillery. Uh, we tasted some whiskeys with her. We met her live as well, which was really, really cool. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing that one. And before we go, and, and um, Mitch, I'm sure you'll remind everyone, remember to ask us some questions about our first year's anniversary. Mm. Get get the questions in, guys. So we've got a whole uh, episode worth of questions from you guys. Um, we're like like we alluded to earlier on as well. We're also doing our first ever live uh, episode of this, and this is going to be brilliant. We've, we've been working hard on this this week actually, uh, and we're going to invite two lucky people to the tasting. This is going to be in Edinburgh. It's going to be on May the twelfth. So you've got to be available for that. Uh, again, so keep your eyes peeled. To we're probably going to do that on, on Instagram. Uh, give away two tickets. It's going to be a really cool tasting. Uh, we're going to do it at the Scotch Bowl Whiskey Society. And we've got the Silver Fox that is Mr. Mark Thompson from Glenfiddich joining us for that as well. Uh, so again, stay tuned to our social media channels to have a chance of winning two places on that tasting, guys. But my, I think that's about us. I think that's we've kind of knocked on the head with regards to Aussie whiskeys there. We're all good. Man. Uh, before 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 we close, um, you how need to do an Aussie accent. accent. Yeah, they do. Oh, yeah, mate. Well, that's us all done, mate, for for uh, for our episode on Aussie whiskies, bud. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going. Bye. <laughs>